This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. This Torah class is brought to you by torahanytime.com. So yes, Baruch Hashem, I'm happy to be here. I wish you brought notebooks, because or else you should get to this um, when this thing goes up, maybe Monday or Tuesday, on Torah anytime, you're going to get a very comprehensive lecture tonight, as if you were back in seminary or in school. Because besides the fact that I'm going to teach you didactically, I'm going to share with you a lot of things that I'm seeing. Six days a week, I think my dear hostess here knows, I don't move from that room, right? I'm on the phone all day with single people, worldwide. Just to give you an idea today, I was with a, a woman calls me up frantic. I'm 62 years old. My husband passed away a year and a half ago. I'm going on, my, on a date after being married for 45 years. And I married the first boy I ever went out with. I have no idea how to date. So I had to take her through the whole concept of what dating is. Giving her a whole, her whole communication thing. Baruch Hashem. You know, thank God it went well. When I deal with a lot of girls from the Beis Yaakov world throughout most of the United States. So, how can I help you? Here we go. Let's start with a joke. Moshe and Miriam were retired living in Miami. Please, have a seat. <laughs> living in Miami. And so Miriam needed to bring in a handyman to fix a leak under the sink. And as the guy's doing his thing underneath the sink and he's playing with the pipes, Miriam says, sweetheart, dinner's ready. It's getting cold. Nothing. Honey, would you like the soup first or the fish? Nothing. My love, it's about time we sat down to have dinner. So the man pokes his head outside from underneath the sink. He goes, Mrs. Goldstein, are you always so lovey-dovey with him like this all the time? She says, I'm so sorry to tell you, but I forgot his name five years ago and I just don't want to embarrass him. (laughs) Well, let's not get that far. But anyway, here's another one. A woman is walking along the beach and she sees a bottle. Opens the cork, a genie comes out. He says, uh, I can grant you one wish. Okay? She pulls out a map. You see, I live in New York. My mother lives on the other side of the world in Australia. I want you to build a bridge that allows me to go to visit my mother. He says, lady, wow, that's a tough one. That's not such an easy request. You have any other requests? Well, kind of think of it. I'm 35 years old. I want to get married. Find me a tall, dark, handsome man who drives a Porsche, has a second home in Miami, likes to go skiing on the West Coast. So he strokes his beard and goes, on second thought, can I see that map one more time? Because sometimes, you know, there's a little bit of an effort. Okay, here we go. By the way, I always have to tell the the audience out there, anybody who needs to reach me on any questions in dating anywhere in the world, Baruch Hashem, today we have WhatsApp. You can contact me on WhatsApp or on cell phone. Or on text at 305-206-1916. Again, 305-206-1916. And anything regarding dating, shiduchim, relationships, you need help, put a top 10 list together, no, no worries, I'll help you. Okay, let me start by telling you what are the problems that we're seeing today. Number one, chasing fairy tales. Which fantasies or fairy tales are you so attached to that they get in your way of finding the right boy or girl? We have an idea in our heads. 
Secular society has put it there, and we can't seem to get it out of our heads. Oftentimes, I'll sit with boys and girls, I'll show them pictures of prospective shidduchim, shidduchim, not my luck, not my luck. One reject after the next. You don't know them. How could you possibly know if they're there, you'll look or not? This is someone who's stuck in this area of fairy tales. Next, toxic expectations. Gotta have it all. Gotta have the house and the money and the best learner and the size double O skirt, whatever it may be. Not realistic expectations. Here's another one. The Yenta trap. I saw this firsthand when I was in California last year. The Yenta trap goes like this. I have to worry about what every friend has to say about my shidduch before I decide if I can go out with him or her. I was invited to speak in Los Angeles. I gave five, five shiurim there. So my host picks me up and he looks very down. I said, Moshe, what's going on? He goes, you won't believe this. I was working on a shidduch so hard with this boy that I really, really liked. And here's what happened. After 11 dates, when I thought he was going to go to engagement, he dropped her. I said, what happened? He showed her picture to his cousin. He said, you're going to go out with her? She's not good enough for you. He dropped her. That's called the enter trap. Not having an idea of what you need, what's important for you, but being so attached to what society has to say that they influence you and your decision. Bad move. The smorgasbord syndrome. What qualities do you look for in a husband or wife that actually is smorgasbord of many qualities that describe a person that could never exist? You put a composite in your head, he has to go to this yeshiva, has to come from Yichus, from that family, has to come from that city, has to drive that car, has to go to a certain Pesach program, and whatever they put on the table for Shabbos. Be careful. Misguided pickiness. In what ways are you picky about the wrong things? You know, while I'm there, i got to share with you an incredible poem about misguided pickiness. Give me a second. I just have to find this thing. We have some work to do tonight, but I want to find this poem. Look at this. I have to tell you this story. Her nose is too long. Her lips are too wide. I could not possibly take her for a bride. She jabbers out questions. She laughs too loud. She's not that smart. And she only blends in with the crowd. What's that that you say? I should give her a chance? Okay, if you say so. I won't trust my first glance. Well, what do you know? Am I ever surprised... She has so many pluses that were somehow disguised. Her laugh sounds so charming. Her questions are so dear. Her brightness was hidden. Her modesty was so sincere. I was so arrogant with my endless demands. Now I am humbled to see the work of Hashem's hands. I'll always be grateful for such a wonderful wife whose menshachkait has enriched the days of my life. Now I'm a new dad and I have to disclose my precious baby has a gorgeous long nose. That's it in a nutshell. What's that? That's what pickiness is all about. Pickiness is using arbitrary and meaningless criteria to judge people. Pickiness is what happens when a person has not taken the time to determine what their priorities are. I'll be speaking about this a little later. What does it mean to determine what your priorities are? 
I'm a very big stickler for creating a top 10 list of needs. I'll get into it a little later. But if you have no idea who you are and what you need, you'll be dating endlessly and not realizing any success. So understand who you are and what your needs are. We'll get into that a little later. Unfortunately, because people fall for this area of misguided pickiness, they can let someone very special slip right through their fingers for entirely the wrong reasons. So you have to be careful about that. Okay, sorry. So let's get into it. Another one, the warped mirror. In what ways do you see yourself that are not accurate portrayals of who you truly are? It's like someone who's anorexic. She sees herself as super fat. You have to know who you are and what you represent. The comfort zone, that's for the older singles. They get used to their life. Oh, I had this one Sunday, 34 years old. 34-year-old girl and her sister right before her, 22. The 34-year-old. I'm trying to explain to her what's important in life. I know that. I know that already. I know about needs. I know about this. I know about that. What are you doing about it? Nothing. Comfort zone. Every time she goes out on a date, guys, you can come in. It's okay. We don't bite. Anyway. Um, the com- what happens is, After every fourth date, she dismisses the guy. Give him a chance. Maybe he's good for you. Make up a list. No, nothing doing. Prejudgment pitfalls is another one. I don't go out with people from that side of town. I don't go out with Sephardim. I don't go out with Ashkenazim. I don't. Not even giving it a chance. Not being open-minded to it at all. These are some of the things that we're seeing today. So what can we do? It starts with this. Hashem is in charge. He's the ultimate boss. We have to daven. Number two, after we're done with that, and I'll explain, I'll give you some of my tips on that later. Prepare a resume. Yes, we need that today. That is the currency in which we deal with in terms of Shaduchim. If I need to talk to a Shadchan about someone else, when I, did, I need to speak to a, a Menaheles or a Menahel, I need something in order to communicate with. And there's a, you know, there's a te- technique to writing a good resume. References. Check the references. And I'll explain to you later what we have to ask. So I want to share a story with you about Davning. 43 years old, never married. I was having a, a tough time getting up the enthusiasm to pray for these same things once again, written by Diane Faber of Los Angeles. Two years ago, I approached Rosh Hashanah with a certain sense of, here we go again, having just turned 43, never married, no children. I was having a tough time getting up the enthusiasm to pray for the same things. How many times can you ask Hashem for the same thing, and how many times can you get the same answer? In Shul Rosh Hashanah that day, I saw two of the young women in our community in LA standing up throughout the whole Chazara Sashats. These two girls, Sarah and Tova, were the daughters of close friends my age. Both 19 years old, fresh back from studying a year in seminary, 
And now, according to the custom of our community, ready to get married, quote-unquote. I knew that these girls would be praying to find their shirts quickly and easily. I had some understanding of why they're standing through Musaf. It's an especially long tefillah, and you're not required to stand, but it's considered meritorious to do so. It's a sigula. That if you stand, Hashem will listen to tefillahs. Listen to what happens. As I sat there behind these two young girls, the one standing along the multitude of all the women seated, I was jealous. I was jealous of their youthful innocence, their belief that doing something extra could make a difference with Hashem. I envied their high chances of marriage that year to young men of their choosing. I envied their stamina for the hours of standing and I envied their perseverance to stand throughout the long service while everyone else remained seated. And I said to myself, how different their outlook is from mine. We daven for the same thing, I thought to myself, how better their chances to get married than me. How lucky they are. I wish I had what they have. I wish I could do what they do. Their faith. From my seated position, I envied their tefillah, and I believed that their tefillah would be answered and that mine again, probably not. And then I said to myself, something amazing. They don't want to be married any more than I do. Their prayers are not more worthier than mine. They're just younger and stronger. And then I did something I did not expect. I stood up. I stood up to show Hashem that my davening and my tefillah was as deeply felt as theirs. That my desires were as sincere as theirs. To show Hashem, I'm not too tired, I'm not too old. That I can handle the responsibilities of marriage and family. I looked at all the other women who were seated comfortably. I made the choice again to stand. Each time the congregation stood and sat again, I remained standing. During the songs, I swayed. During the silent fila, I wept. I pushed myself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And later during that year, Sarah, Tova, and I were married within six weeks of each other. Two very lovely young ladies and one woman old enough to be their mother. I planned my wedding as my two of their friends planned their daughter's weddings. We shared caterers, photographers, and lots of laughs as a season of planning of joy enveloped us. And we danced together at all three weddings. But it doesn't end. Last year, as the high holidays approached, I still had one prayer left unanswered. I understood the statistics, the physical realities, the unlikelihood of success. But I was married now. And like most married Jewish women, I hoped for one more request. I'm sure you can guess what that is. A child. Was my desire any less because my body was old? In fact, at 44, my desire is greater. If I'm ever going to have a child, it has to be this year. I wondered if I could summon up the inner strength and the physical strength to stand through the service again. Sarah and Tova were long gone. One, learning with her, her husband, learning in Neri in Baltimore, and the other one in Yerushalayim. I said to myself, I'm going to be on my own this year. Do I have the commitment to persevere? Ladies and gentlemen, this is what it's all about. Commitment, never giving up. I tried. 
I made it through the Rosh Hashanah service, I felt good. I was determined. Anything is possible. But on Yom Kippur, my physical strength failed me. I stood, I stood, I stood, and then I just had to sit down. I was wiped out. As I took my seat, I felt this terrible sense of despair. You know what? What can I say? I'm not 20 anymore. I don't have the stamina. I can't do it on my own. I thought, I knew that standing wasn't required. But I came to believe over the last year that's what made the difference in helping me getting married. As the closing prayers of Nihilat approached, everyone stood up in the whole shul. I was on my feet again, along with them. I knew everything was about to be decided at that moment in Shemaim. And I wasn't sure that I do all I could to help myself. And just before the end of Ni'ilah, I leaned over to my friend a, a row ahead of me. I said, Judy, could you just please ask for one more Nishama this year? And then I burst into tears, fearing that I had failed. And a few weeks later, I learned why my physical strength had failed me. She was pregnant. Hmm? Determination, gutsy, never giving up, believing your tefillah can make a difference. So, we need to get educated. If you drive a car, at least in New York, you have to take driver's ed. You can't just get into a car without having proper training. Today, the same thing holds true for dating. You need a bit of education today. It's become complex. Life, as we spoke, is not as simple as 40 years ago, right Yaakov? Where just things were simpler. Today, life has gotten much more complex. So let's start with dating the right guy. Who you marry influences every aspect of your life. Self-esteem is vital. Believe in yourself. Hashem loves you. And everyone has something to contribute to in this world. Everyone can do something. Self-esteem is critical. Lack of it, the boys will pick up on in a second. Believe in yourself. You must feel good about yourself in order to feel good with someone else. Build your self-esteem. How do you do that? You know how? Whatever it is you're good at, do a lot of. You like to bake? Go for it. You like to sew? Fantastic. You like art? Spend time as much time as you can with the qualities that Hashem endeared you with, that gives you your talents. So you can feel good about yourself. You should like your date, but it's even more important to like yourself when you're with your date. Someone who allows you to be yourself, admiring and appreciating as you are, builds your confidence and helps promote your growth. In turn, you'll do the same for them. And above all, be yourself. No pretenses. Should I settle? A little bit of a joke, but it gives us the reality of what's going on. Let's hear the demands of a girl named Basia at age 22. These are her top things that she wants in a boy. Number one, handsome. Number two, he's got to be charming. Number three, financially successful. Number four, a caring listener. Number five, witty. Number six, got to be slim and in good shape. Seven, dresses in style. Eight, appreciates the finer things in life. Nine, full of thoughtful surprises. And ten, romantic. Well, Basia was just a little too picky. 
And now she's 32. Let's hear Basia's revised list at the age of 32. Number one, nice looking, preferably has hair on his head. Number two, opens the car door and holds the chair. Number three, has enough money for a nice dinner. Number four, listens more than he talks. Number five, laughs at my jokes. Number six, carries the bags of groceries with ease. Number seven, owns at least one tie. Number eight, appreciates a good home-cooked meal. Number nine, remembers birthdays and anniversaries. Number ten, is attentive. Well, Basia, very picky girl. She's now 42. Let's hear her revised list. Number one, not too ugly. Bald head is absolutely okay. Number two, doesn't drive off until I'm in the car. Number three, he works steady. Once in a while, takes me out to dinner. Number four, nods his head when I'm talking. Number five, usually remembers punchlines of jokes. Number six, he's in good enough shape to rearrange the furniture. Number seven, wears a shirt that covers his stomach. Number eight, knows not to buy champagne with screw-top lids. Number nine, remembers to put the toilet seat down. Number ten, shaves on most weekends. Boss is still holding out, and now she's 52. Let's hear her revised list. Number one, looks presentable. Number two, doesn't birch, belch, or burp in public. Number three, doesn't borrow money too often. Number four, doesn't go to sleep when I'm venting. Number five, doesn't retell the same joke too many times. Number six, he's in good enough shape to get off the couch on some weekends. Number seven, usually wears matching socks and fresh underwear. Number eight, appreciates a good TV dinner. Number nine, remembers my name on occasion. Number ten, shaves on some weekends. Revised list, age 62. Number one, doesn't scare off small children. Number two, remembers where the bathroom is. Number three, doesn't require much money for upkeep. Number four, only snores lightly when he's asleep. Number five, remembers why he's laughing. Number six, is in good enough shape to stand up by himself. Number seven, remembers how to get dressed himself. Number eight, likes only soft foods. Number nine, remembers where he left his teeth. Ten, remembers that's the weekend. Sadly, Basi's only 72. And the only thing she has on one list is one thing, that he's a guy who's breathing. <laughs> so we have to be very, very, you know, realistic. We've all been sp- spoon-fed fantasy tales and romance stories from early childhood. They're captivating, they're exciting, and they always have a happy ending. As much as we try to shelter ourselves from notions of wealth, romance, and love, fairy tales have become a significant part of our reality. We assume that we begin to date, we'll simply fall madly in love, we'll be financially set for the rest of our lives. We expect our prince to carry us off to his castle, and our princess to be refined and beautiful. Fictional characters are wonderful people, otherwise they wouldn't be fictional. Unless you think that we're above fairy tales with our insulated lifestyles and lofty values, be assured that we have just as many destructive ideals as the secular world. I'll give you an example. About a year ago, I get a phone call from a girl from Muncie, picture postcard out of a base Yaakov yearbook. She says, I have to come and see you. Fine, but I got to bring my brother with me. 
Whoa. Okay. They come and see me in Brooklyn. She's wearing a wig. So I know she probably is married, was married. Maybe 20 and a half years old, not older than that. She says, I can't tell you the story because the Rosh Bays didn't want to allow me. The man issued my get. So what happened? Well, I married a boy. I should have really done more homework on him. They said he was a good guy. Every Friday while we were living in Lakewood, the friends would come over. Two or three bottles of scotch would come out two or three hours before Shabbos would start. And everyone was already bombed. This was going on every Friday. Okay. One day, his cell phone is on the table. I happened to quote and catch notice of texts. He was already having an affair. Six months within the marriage. And in order to get the get, she gave a commitment to Shumun speak Lashon Hara about him. You know, it was really terrible. It was with one of the wives of the Rams of the yeshiva. Devastating. So, we have to be careful. Societal notions have indeed crept in to our, our from world, and we have to be very cautious. Relationships involve a great deal of work. There's going to be misunderstandings, thoughtlessness that needs to be apologized for, stresses of life that impinge on our ability to take care of each other. And it's always difficult to carve out the time necessary to communicate. So the thing I want to tell everyone here is until the magical day happens, the most important thing you can do is invest in yourself and continue to work on yourselves to be the best people you can possibly be. Don't sit around and waste time. Work on self-improvement. Work on Musar. Make yourselves better people. Continue to hone your skills of dating effectively, because that's critical. I spoke before about creating a top 10 list of needs. So many people walk into my office with a very clear picture of what they want in a boy or a girl, a husband and wife, but no idea of what they need. They don't realize that getting what you want will never make you happy. The secret to a powerful and effective search is knowing what you need to be happy. This results in a much happier marriage as well. So, let's give you a little bit of a background. Imagine a bratty little birthday boy handing a list to his father for his birthday present. That reads, Dad, I want a blue bike, I want five balls, I want a red truck, I want a hobby horse, I want a swing set with a slide, I want a computer, I want a skateboard, eight coloring books, four board games, roller skates, baseball glove, treehouse, and drum set. Now imagine that his brother hands the father a list, also at his birthday. Dad... All I want is a baseball glove. It doesn't have to be the best one in the store. Just one that fits me well and will last a long time. Which boy do you think the father will be more disposed towards helping? Boy number two. 
Which part do you think the father will grant even more than he asked for? And which one do you think will be happier with what he ends up? Unfortunately, we've put together lists that go on and on and on, and I'll read you a story later, ad nauseum, of what we want in a potential spouse. Is rich important? No. Is tall important? No. Is classy important? No. Is glamorous important? No. Is stylish important? No. What's important? Try this. Loyal. Trustworthy. Sense of humor. You're a Shemayim. Happy-go-lucky. An easy guy. I always tell girls, guys too, but girls, make sure he has Simcha Sachayim. That's what I told the lady today, the 62-year-old. You're about to get married again. Make sure he's a happy man. You don't want to be under this same roof with someone who's depressed and negative guy, or girl for that matter. Is he generous? At this point, let me tell you what I told my three daughters, Baruch Hashem, they're all married. I said, Esti, Pearly, and Sarah. Three words I want to drill into your heads. Kamtsan, Kaptan, and Kasan. Watch out. Does he have anger issues? Does he have to have it his way? Is he inflexible? And is he cheap? Girls, when you date, exhaustively go search for those three areas. That is Gehenim, any of those three. So is he generous? Is he friendly? Does he have a Rebbe? Very important. Very And a great Moroccan girl coming to me from the five towns last year, married four months, married a boy who went to Mir Yeshiva in Israel three years, used to learn three hours a day, down to two hours, down to an hour, down to ten minutes, now doesn't even learn at all. Barely makes it to Minyan. I said, does he have a Rebbe? She said, yes. Run to him now. He can fix the problem. Baruch Hashem, she did. She listened to me and... The boy was having issues with jobs and he lost his bearings a little bit. But no Rebbe means no one tells him what to do. That means he's not beholden to anybody. Big no-no in my book. Who's going to tell him? When there's a problem later, if he never made an attachment to a Rosh Kolel or a Rebbe or a Rosh Yeshiva, a good boy keeps a kesher to his Rebbe forever. Or his mentor of some kind. Let's continue with what's important. Ambitious. Does he have a panasa plan? I have a beautiful student who got married. One of my students, she's a very special person. She was the last in her class. And she felt odd not being married. She was 24. Didn't do much research into the guy. He was in bed every day till midday. Midday. Never went to work. That marriage was done in a year, and it took me a year and a half to get her to get. So let's be careful. What's his plan? How's he going to take care of the house? Very important. Giving. Whoa. That's the root of Ahava. Ahav. Honest. Critical. Sincere. These are the things that need to be on some of your top ten lists. I help do this for a lot of girls. They call me, I listen to them, I speak to them, and I help fashion their list for them. Determined is another one. So again, what should be on your list are things that are relating to midos. And not on your list 
are things that are more physical or more secular or more money related. So very important to create that top 10 list. Let's go now into the dating period. The first date or first few dates, create a comfort zone. Imagine you're on an airplane from Toronto or Montreal to Tel Aviv. You're sitting next to someone, you catch up, you start some small talk. What book are you reading? Where are you from? Jewish geography? That's date number one. You're basically feeling each other out to determine, do we have similar values? Do we have similar goals? You're trying to become relaxed in each other's presence. So here's what's important. Life has taught us that love does not consist of gazing at each other, but in looking, looking outward together in the same direction. And your mission is to determine if the person that you're dating is headed in the same direction and gazing in the same direction you're gazing. If you want eight children and he wants 1.7 and a dog, you have a problem. You're not headed in the same direction. If he wants to learn full-time for a few years and you have nothing to do with that, you got a problem. You have to know who you are and what you need. Life partners need to have the same goals. And the more you flush this out now, the less wasting of time later on with needless dating. Because needless dating leads to depression. You get these girls who date anything and everything, and then there comes a time for three, four months, they don't want to date, they're burnt out. You want to be like a medical specialist. He handles three inches of real estate on the body. Focus in on what you need and try to be very guided by your goals and by your top 10 list. So when someone reads your shidduch, you basically have the questions you want to ask because you've created your top 10 list. Does he want to learn? Is he dependable? Is he kind? Is he generous? Does he have a rebbe? We've, you know, we've gone through that. The more different your values and beliefs are, the more challenging marriage is going to be for you. Even two wonderful people will have a difficult time creating a happy marriage if their dreams, their goals, and beliefs differ. So let me share a story with you about a girl named Sarah. True story. 35 years ago, when the Baal Tshuva movement started, it also caught fire in Paris. And there was a girl named Sarah whose, whose sister married a learning boy, which was considered nouveau in, at the time. So she was admiring her sister, and she says to herself, I want a learning boy also. So she tells her parents, I want a learning boy. So his father's having a casual conversation with his brother Moisey. Moisey says, you know what? I have a great guy for her, Joe Levy. I want to set him up. The father was, you know, he didn't know the details of what you have to ask in terms of uh, the background of a learning boy. So the date is set up in a five-star hotel. They're going to meet for drinks in the lobby of a five-star hotel in Paris. Sounds good. There's Sarah waiting, dressed modestly, when all of a sudden a guy approaches her with a Grateful Dead t-shirt and jeans. And he looks at her and he says, Sarah? She looks at him, can I help you? <laughs> she says, how can I help? What do you want? What do you want? He says, were you sent to send me a message or something? He says, no, I'm Joe. She's like, she's in shock. I'm supposed to be waiting for a learning boy. He's supposed to be religious. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Puts it on. 
But my uncle said, you're a learning boy. Yeah, I go to the University of Paris. I'm going to, be a, I'm going to receive my master's in architecture in six months. I'm supposed to be going out with someone who goes to shul. I do, twice a year. Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. What's the problem? And now ensues a debate between them. And he starts to ask her a question. Why do you want to le- marry a learning boy anyway? She says, because my dream is to work as a CPA and fulfill my, my, my family goal that my husband should learn Torah and I should support him. And it's going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. After an hour, she says, okay, we're done. Can I go home now? And they're getting ready to disengage. He looks at her and he asks the million-dollar question. Sarah, what if I became that guy? She says, ridiculous, you're wasting your time. It can never happen. Okay, they leave. A month later, they get a phone call from Uncle Moisey, who starts a whole anger episode at his brother. What did she do to him? I just got a phone call from Joe's father. He dropped out of the University of Paris 30 days ago. With six months left, he's getting his master's in architecture to go to yeshiva in Aix-les-Bains. And he wants another date with Sarah. No, I'm not sure. I don't want to go out with him. I'm not really sure. I don't know. They did one of these numbers on her. And they meet in the same hotel. And now, different guy. White shirt, blue pants, kippah on. And he's telling her how much he loves Torah. He's, he's living now. Tyra. Feels great. And it's going well. At the end of the conversation and the date, he asks her, can I go out again with you? A third date. She didn't see the potential in him. And she said, oh, Balchiva, I don't know. No. He says, you sure? No. Okay. She went home. She started to ask herself, did I make a mistake? I'm not sure. I don't know. Anyway, he took it as a no. And he went on to Orsameach in Mansi. And the years are flying by. Our Sarah is no longer 21 now. 23, 25. The guy hasn't come into our life. Listen to what happens. At 28, word comes back into Paris from Israel that Joe is no longer Joe. Joe is Rabbi Yosef Levi, who's now Rosh Kolel to 50 Avrechim in Yerushalayim. And he got married. And he has five children. And now the years fly by. She's 38. 17 years later. Unfortunately, a horrible episode takes place. A terrorist attack takes place in Israel. Can I just check something?
Okay. So, a terrorist attack took place in Israel. Joel, Yosef's wife, was killed in a terrorist attack with three out of their five children. And now he has to come back to Paris to visit with family. And you know what's going on in Paris. The whole town is talking. Rabbi Levy's coming to town. It's been a few months since the wife passed away. And everyone's proposing the same idea. Would you like to go out with him? And she says, this time I'm not going to make the mistake. And guess where the date is? The same hotel. And she's sitting there waiting. And you wouldn't believe this sight. Comes through the front door. A man wearing a Hamburg, which is the hat of the Rosh Hashiva, a long frock. And she's like in shock. And they sit down and they talk about life. It's been 17 years. And he tells her, you, I owe you everything. Because of you, I became who I became. My wife used to go daven at the Koisel every day, so you should get a shidduch. Because you were responsible for my life. And she started to cry. And she said, you had mercy on me, and I never had mercy on you. Two or three dates went by. Proposal, marriage. On the day of their wedding, he gave her a souvenir. He said, I want you to put this inside our photo album. The first kippah he ever wore. Right in the photo album. They went on to have two children. Got to be able to sense someone's potential. Especially when you see an earnest desire. Okay, so we went through the first area of dating. Here's a very important area. Give of yourself so you can open a window to your soul. Now I'm not telling you to do this on the first date, but as you date, date three, date four, date five, expose your vulnerability a little bit. A Syrian girl came to see me in New York for dating help. She went out 33 times with one guy and never got deep at all in anything. I asked her, what's important to him? I don't know. What does he want to do with his life? I don't know. Everything was I don't know. What did you talk about for 33 dates? Needless to say, he was gone within 24 hours. He said, when we created a top 10 list, he didn't match anything that she needed. No GPS, totally lost in the forest. So it's important. When you share your emotions, you receive positive feedback. You've got to take a little bit of a risk. I'm not saying saying something which is extraordinarily you know, uh, threatening or anything, but to give an idea who you are, what you represent, what you're looking for in life. That's important. Okay. Discuss personal issues and ask yourself, is he open, is he honest? Is he erecting walls and keeping you out of places in his life? You cannot marry someone unless you have developed an open and honest environment between both of you, with nothing hidden. Again, dating conversations 
must progress from the mundane to the deep. How long can you talk about the weather? From the obvious to more dreams, goals, children, yeshiva, midos. What's your Shabbat's table going to look like? What are his friends like? What are her friends like? That gives you a great indication of what they're all about. Who is your favorite market cheer? Who inspires you? What are your goals for the next five or ten years? That's how you flush out the kind of person you're dating with to see if that is integrating with what you need in life. Understand who he is, who she is, their circle of friends, who their confidence are, and what they stand for. Sometimes people feel that they're not getting any closer while they're dating with the person that they're dating with. Here's a suggestion. Complimenting each other helps tear down that barrier. After four or five dates, if, a, if he tells you, you know, he accomplished a certain item, he finished the mesechta, say, wow, that's very nice. So, you know, looking for ways to affirm the other person because self-esteem is vital in a healthy marriage. Strengthening their self-esteem is always one way to get closer to that person. How do I recognize the right person versus the wrong person? This is a didactic part of our class, so listen up. It's a mistake to be lured by outward trappings such as beauty or money. Although physical attraction is absolutely necessary, physical attraction can wear off and then the work begins. The right spouse will help you navigate your way through life. While someone you may be infatuated with can put you and send you down a path that you never intended to go. Too often people forget to take the long-term picture into account. Here's an important question you have to ask yourself. Will this person help me grow? When you choose a husband or a wife for the right reasons, you respect each other, you develop an appreciation for each other, and you're dedicated to each other's dreams and goals. When you look for a life partner, you're concerned with personality, intelligence, financial standing, religious values, family background. A marriage sometimes fails because people don't judge the other person with objectivity. They don't look and see who's in front of them. They project virtues on the person that doesn't exist. Just to get it going and get it moving. Yeah, he's a good learner. Yeah, he's a nice guy. You haven't called. You haven't made any reference checks or nothing. Is your attraction towards that your date based on an objective appraisal of his or her qualities? Or are you projecting virtues where they don't exist and you are you ignoring disturbing character flaws. People sometimes close their eyes, unwilling to see what they don't want to see. If you're looking for someone cultured and edel and refined, then don't settle for someone who's narrow-minded and crude and lacking in class. If you're searching for someone who's ruchnius, who has spirituality, then don't settle for someone who talks about money 24-7. If you want a warm hub, happy and accepting spouse, don't settle for someone who's depressed, self-centered, or judgmental. Loving him or her won't magically erase 
their bad qualities. However, being cognizant of the fact that he or she has flaws does not mean you have to reject him or her. Does not mean you have to reject. Every one of us has faults. Look at the, the person's flaws in relation to the positive qualities and do a cheshpin. If the positive qualities far outweigh the negative ones and there's nothing specific that annoys you, it looks good. When my last daughter got engaged, her two best friends broke up within weeks of their wedding. Both of them. Both of them broke up because both of them had the same thing. Each of them had something individual that was annoying them about the boy and couldn't stop thinking about it. So, if there's something very specific that annoys you, you have to have a talk with a Rav, dating coach, mentor, or maybe. Otherwise, if there's nothing that really annoys you terribly and the positive outweighs the negative, and you have six out of your ten qualities on your top ten list met, Vita, go forward. What am I looking for? Search for a person who could be your friend. Someone you can talk to. Someone you can confide in. Someone who listens to you. Someone who understands you. Someone who values your opinion. Someone who can, you can trust and whose character you admire. Someone with a healthy self-esteem. Someone who knows how to protect and appreciate and respect your boundaries. Experience has taught us something you all know. The apple does not fall far from the tree. Look at the family. What's the family like? Healthy homes produce good, healthy, well-adjusted children. Is, are there any issues in that home? Instabilities. Ask yourself the question, and this is a very important question. Will he bring out the best in me? And will he, allow, he or she allow me to be comfortable with myself? Or do I have to fake them out all the time because I'm constantly trying to win rapport with him? Be aware of incongruent behavior. What is that? He tells you one thing, but he does something else. He claims he goes to Vaisikin every day. So why are you in bed every day at 9 a.m.? Make sure that what he says or she says and what they do correspond. And here's a bunch of questions. Is he or she emotionally needy? They're always on top of you. Are they lovable and loving? Are they complimentary? Or do they frequently criticize? I had a girl come to me who's living in Muncie from Australia that had the very same thing. He goes, he's nice, but he's always criticizing everyone when we're on dates. Criticizes the waitress, criticizes the maitre d', criticizes... These are red flags. Pay attention to them. I told her he's not for you. She gave the ring back. Next. Watch out for a person who believes he's never wrong, who blames you for everything, and never apologizes for any misdeed. Examine every aspect of their personality and ego to decide, how will this affect you? Are they generous? Are they kind and considerate? i got to share an amazing story with you. Ruchi Gradowitz, true story, was engaged in Yerushalayim. To a nice boy. And he wanted to decide where to make the chasana. 
So the father was, you know, middle of the road, balabas. He wasn't making that much money, but you know, a chasen is a chasen. It costs money. So they started to go looking at holes. And he went to Sasson Vesimcha Hall in Yushalayim. The name has been changed. And they walk into the hall. Benny, the general manager, welcomes them at the front door. And he says, Hello, Rabbi Graduates. Would you like to look at the big room or the small room? So she's pulling her father's, yanking his father's jacket. Abba, Abba, I really want the big room. I want my friends to be comfortable. I want them to be able to dance. But it's hard, you know. He worked up the numbers. It's very tight for me. It's, it's a lot. And they went and they looked at the small room and they looked at the big room and he sees his daughter, you know. He wants to make her happy. And it's a little hard for him, but he says, you know what, okay, we'll tie in our belts, we'll figure it out. Hashem will help. Hashem Yazor. And he signed the contract for the big room. And now a few months to go. And now there's all the things that we have to get ready. Shavar Brachas, buy all the things that they need to buy, clothing, etc. Get ready to outfit the apartment. When two weeks before the wedding, there's a phone call. Shalom, Ken Mizeh, Shem Shali, Givedet Haber. And me, the Bedet in Givedet graduates. Ken, as Mabaya, you know, what's up? And she was like stuttering. The woman couldn't come out with what she wanted to talk to her about. She says to her, Mrs. Gar says, no, what's, how can I help you? Is it true that your daughter is getting married on January 20th in Sasan Vesimcharon? Yes, Mazel Tov. She says, my daughter's getting married too that day. We, we, we booked a small hall. But we have this little problem. See, my daughter is so emotionally distraught about being in this second room, that small hall, that she hasn't eaten in two weeks. She's sick in bed, emotionally depressed. I have a huge request to ask of your daughter. Would she trade rooms? Now, I don't think any of you girls would want that as a Nisayan. Whoa. That's a big one for a kala to swap rooms. So she says, wow, you hit me with a massive request. And I can't answer that. I have to talk to my daughter. Okay. So she hangs up the phone. She tells her husband. They call in, Ruchi, Ruchi. Very interesting phone call we just got. And what happened, Abba Ima? He told her the story. There's this girl who's sick in bed. She's getting married the same night you're getting married. And she's feeling heartbroken over the fact that she has the small room. And she's making a huge request of you if you would swap rooms with her. Do you have the kawah hanafshi to do that? So she says, Abba Ima, I gotta think about this one. Give me a couple, couple of days. A couple of days goes by. And she says, I'll do it. Major league willpower. Major league. Okay. The night before the wedding, there's a phone call placed by a major league real estate developer in Yerushalayim to Benny, the general manager. Hi, how are you? Mr. Sharf, how are you? Yossi Sharf, very well-known real estate developer, magnet. He says, Benny, hi, how are you? Yeah, Baruch Hashem, things are good. You know, my, my son is getting married tomorrow in the Citadel. Yeah, Mazel Tov, that's wonderful. You know, I have a minhag. On the night that any of my children get married, I pay for the complete wedding of someone else's. 
So do you have anybody on the schedule for tomorrow? He looks and he sees, yeah, I have the big room and the small room. Well, I guess, I guess I'll take the small room because they probably could use my help more. And the next night, they're taking pictures, taking pictures of the graduates with his Hassan and his daughter. When the general manager approaches him, he says, graduates, I have to talk to you. We have, we have something important came up. So he turns white as a ghost. What happened? Did the check bounce? My check to you? He says, no, 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 no. Come into my office. He takes the check, rips it up, our graduates, <clears throat> the whole thing's on the house. It's been paid for by an anonymous donor. He wants to pay for the whole thing. Midos! Midos. She was a veteran. She had a critical decision to make. Her Midos shined. And her Bonishon paid her right back. Freebie, the whole night. Okay. Look for maturity, look for responsibility. Mature... People are committed to working on their marriage. They're willing to give and share without constantly measuring or worrying tit for tat. Love is not about a scorecard. I did for you, so you do for me. No, 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 no. The person that you are dating has to have a positive feeling that he, whatever he does, and you as well, is what we call unconditional giving. Does he communicate well with you? Or she? Do they get what you're saying? Watch out for avoidant behavior. If you see the person avoiding answering questions or doesn't want to reveal personal information about themselves or doesn't want to meet your family, a sure sign that they have something to hide. Or he shuts down or she shuts down and doesn't want to listen to you because they're so self-absorbed in what they have to say. If he arrives late all the time, if he keeps you waiting, if you can't wait peacefully for a table at a restaurant, if he fights with the maitre d', if he complains that the restaurant is not nice enough, if he's more concerned about his car than you, if he cuts off someone in front of him while he's driving, or if the plans get messed up, and when you arrive, they didn't reserve your table as was hoped, did he lose it, did he lose his cool? His reactions and her reactions reveal a wealth of well-kept secrets about them. So be careful because when you date, you are on a treasure hunt looking for clues. Pay attention. Does he or she scream or use inappropriate language? Or do they accept problems with common sensitivity? Does he or she retain anger for a long while? Or are they able to forget it and move on? Do they easily bounce back and think straight after having suffered a setback? These reactions are excellent indicators which will help you decide if this is the right person for you or not. I gave you a lot of Q&As. So try to go back to Torah anytime. If you're taking notes, it's good. And think, think into these ideas. Is he rigid or is she rigid? Are they difficult to live with? Or are they well-balanced and chilled and flexible? Little sensitivities tell a bigger story. If you're seated in a restaurant and you're right under the air conditioning vent, does he ask to change the table so you can be more comfortable? Does he offer his, his jacket? 
Pay close attention to how he talks about his family. What kind of relationship he talks he has with his parents, he or she have with their parents. Don't dismiss anything. Notice how he acts when he thinks no one's watching him. Everything is observable. And eventually, people always ask me, how will I know about the real truth about him? Well, if you pay attention to the questions that I ask you and you date long enough, eventually they let their cards down. Eventually you see who the real person is. Susie left to go to the ladies' room. Yaakov berated the waiter in front of her friends who were in the restaurant. Later, when Susie was told by her friends how Yaakov embarrassed the poor waiter, she said, ah, you're, you're exaggerating. She married him. Found herself married to a guy who was critical, angry all the time, and divorced him a few, a few years later. Be careful, like I said before, if someone has a terrible temper who bashes others. Be on guard with anyone who's cheap with his money, his time, or his attention. If you're at the bottom of the person's list, don't accept that. Try to learn about his social life. What are his friends like? Friends are a major influence on a person's thoughts and behavior. You can tell a lot about a person by observing who they choose as their friends. That's very important. If he, if he or she, let's say he, keeps quality friends, that's a great indicator that the person is high quality himself. Marriage is a lifelong commitment, so it's important to know the challenges that you face. Now, you have to keep an eye on these things, to be on the lookout. We should never know from it, but it's important that we just have to make a little comment, be on the lookout, for addictions, God forbid, emotional issues such as depression, OCD, issues we have to keep on the lookout for. It's very important. You never know. Religious beliefs are another important area to explore. Does he share your hashkafa? And does he plan to have as much religion in his day-to-day life like you would have? Religious differences are way too important to overlook. I always tell everyone, you need to be somewhere in the same playing field, religiously. It's even better when the girl's more religious than the guy. Because the girl has an easier time to influence the boy to become better. Does he have a steady job? If you're planning to marry a person who's working, do you have the same standard of living in mind? Does he plan to work learn or combine both? Do you respect his level of education? Does he work well with others? Is he willing to work hard? Is he intellectually compatible with you? Is he bright enough for you? Is he sharp enough? Does he have street smarts? All important. Again, are you comfortable with each other's lifestyle? And that means a lot in terms of the finances. Very important. Here's what I tell girls to do, and boys too. That I'm a very big believer of the gratitude approach in talking to Hashem. That is to say thank you every day for 50 things, create a list, 
can write it up once, say thank you for 50 things, and include on that list, thank you Hashem that I'm single. I accept that it's the best thing for me. Let me read you a story why. Anytime you have a difficulty in your life and you haven't gotten what you want, the most important thing is to thank Hashem for it and then ask Him in a certain way. I'll show you. This is a story that Rosh Hashanah writes. And I'll translate it for you in Hebrew. A woman came to me who could not have children for a very long time. And she told me, she's tried everything. Tefillah, Chuvat, Staka, Segulos, everything. Even medical treatments. Nothing is working. And they're at the brink of despair. She says to the rabbi, Will I never see a salvation? Will I never merit to have a child? I said to the woman, Forget about the schoolers. Don't even pray a lot. Stand every day. After you daven for 15 minutes and say, Thank you. That until today I have no kids. It's the best thing for me that I have no children until today. Why? Only through not having children will I achieve my tikkun, which calls for me until today not to have children. Work on having a good eye. Be happy every time you hear news that someone had a child or someone got engaged. And here's what I want you to do. Rakbasof. At the end, ask Hashem the following. Master of the universe, grant me my soulmate as a request of mercy because I deserve nothing. And I promise you, you'll have children. She had six. So she asked me a question. Why is your system better than mine? I prayed, Bachiti, I cried, I pleaded to Hashem. Aniti I answered her. Here's the difference when a person davens and then has a little bit of a seder in gratitude for the very problem. When you say thank you, what you're actually demonstrating is emunah, that everything that is happening is for the best. When you have a so-called difficulty in your life or you haven't achieved what you want, that what I'm in now is the best thing for me. And when you say thank you, you're actually demonstrating that God wants my life, miduyak, perfectly, and there's no mistake in shum ta'ut that I have no children or I'm not married until today. And when you say thank you for the, for the status of your life, you're showing imunah that everything is from Hashem and that the only reason that you're not married is kach Hashem rotzeh. And you'll ask Hashem to grant it to you as a request of mercy. Ah, why didn't it work before? Yes, you davened. But because in the back of your mind, you'd look at your friend who had a child, you were upset. And now you had complaints against Hashem a little bit. So now your tefillah goes up to Shemaim, it gets hijacked by these mekatrigim, who bring it to Hashem and say, look at this, she went to the bathroom today, no dialysis, she's well fed, he's well fed, he has a job. Promotions, travel, and then I have tainas on us. Pull the file. 
we mean too nice to them. You know, last week they were on the interstate, they almost got into a car accident, but we made sure that the last minute they turned their eyes and they were able to see the car. They're not appreciating all that we do for them. I'll show you how I used it. You know, I was trained as a, as a foot surgeon. And I was in practice in Miami. One day, and when I was in New York for the summer, one day, I get my bill, $48,000. My nurse stole my credit card. I went on a $48,000 buying spree. And now I was being sued by Capital One for the $48,000. I called them up, I said, she stole the car. It didn't help matters that her name was Lisa Cohen. But anyway, I told them, not related to me. She was a fry girl, not religious at all. I said, it's not me. Usually they just drop the matter, right? No, no. A few days later, there's a knock on the door. A man comes from court, summons a complaint. You're being sued. Okay. So I figured, you know what? I'll be pro se. I learned a little bit of law here and there in my life. I'm going to be my own lawyer. And I'm going to go in and tell the judge. I grabbed the subway in Brooklyn to go to downtown Manhattan to the courthouse. The whole way, thank you, Hashem. It's for the best. 200 times. I get to court. It's a couple hundred cases. You don't just don't hear your case. They hear a whole room like this size. So you're in the afternoon docket. That means you're with 400 people. And I was like 165. Okay, number one is called, number two is called, number five is called. They get up there, the judge decides the case, hands the case out. It's a five, six hour thing. You're sitting there. Finally, Cohen versus Capital One. So I approached the, the bench. Your Honor? Yes. Okay, Capital One. Capital One, where's your lawyer? This is a bank that probably hires $2,000 an hour lawyers. They can't find a lawyer. Five seconds. Five, four, three, two, one. Case dismissed. That's how you use the power of gratitude. You take a problem, you say thank you for the problem, because whenever we have an issue in our life, it means Hashem is trying to get our attention. When you say thank you, you're acknowledging, you got my attention. All the way. And just ask as a bakashas rachim. It's an amazing tool. Consider it. Very, very helpful. Let me close with two, with one small story. I recently lectured at Landers College for Women in the city. All good from girls. I read them a story. How I stopped searching for Mr. Cool and I finally found Mr. Wright. Interview with Goldie. Growing up in Florida, as the second youngest in a family of six, I watched my brothers and sisters marry one by one. I eagerly awaited for my turn to start dating. Just after my 19th birthday, my parents started searching for me. I never would have imagined that I'd be dating for over 10 years. To be honest, back then, I had an overly romantic vision of marriage. I yearned for the perfect wedding and wanted to find my prince charming. Instead of focusing on what core qualities I needed in a husband, I was fixated on finding the macher. Social, handsome, well-liked, who everyone would be impressed with. If you guys recognize the Enter syndrome here, we've learned it before. It didn't help matters that my parents put me on a very big pedestal. They wanted the very best for their little girl. Out of love and concern, they scrutinized the boys that I dated, searching for flaws and imperfections. No one was ever good enough. They rejected most of the Bachram even before I even went out with them. 
I always figured I would marry the first guy I dated, like a few of my brothers and sisters had. So when the first boy I went out with was not interested in going out on a second date, it felt like my world had come crashing down. My bubble quickly burst as several boys I dated indicated their lack of interest in continuing. That year and in the years that followed, the majority of the girls that had gone to school and seminary with got married. But at 23, when my best friend Bracha, who was like a sister to me, got engaged, I'll admit, I started to really struggle. I rejoiced with Bracha, but as we celebrated at her lechayim, her vort, her wedding, her sheva brachas, I felt like I was left behind. As sad and alone as I felt, her marriage was a turning point for me. I started to reflect on why Shaduchim were not going easily. Now listen up. These are lessons that she teaches us that are worth millions. The more I reflected, the clearer it became. I had been putting far too much value on what others thought, and it came from a place of insecurity. Baruch Hashem, I recognized that if I kept searching for Mr. Perfect instead of Mr. Right for me, I would never have found my husband. I had to stop and take the time to figure out who I was and what I wanted. I started with working with a dating coach who helped me explore the source of my insecurities and empowered me to worry less about what others thought and more what was important for me to be happy. It became clear that I had been overpowering on my dates rather than expressing my softer, more feminine side. So I started doing more practical and spiritual hishtadahs. I traveled to Eretz Yisrael, davened the Kavarim, poured my heart out at the Kosal. I joined the healing groups where single women davened for each other. I took care of myself, that's important. I exercised regularly, I ate well, I kept busy with work and friends. Most importantly, I discovered how to be happy with myself and learn to be vulnerable enough to express my softer, more feminine side. One day, a few weeks after I turned 30, my cousin called me and suggested Shimmy. He described him as a kind, confident man who knew how to get things done. But when I searched him on social media, this is the big one today, he looked so nerdy in his pictures. Nothing like the cool guy I was interested in, so now I was torn. What's more, he was 26, four years younger than me. But I learned an important lesson. In my 10 years of dating, a minor age difference doesn't really matter. If he was the right one, so what if he's a little younger? And if we had great connection and mutual attraction, so what if he wasn't the machra I'd envision marrying? At 30, it was crystal clear. I had to build a home with the right person, whether or not he was Mr. Cool or not. So when I met Shimmy, I was at ease. Being with him felt comfortable and familiar. Girls, you heard me. With all, I brought down a lot of these thoughts tonight already. I'm just cementing them now with these great stories. So I felt secure enough to express my feminine side. Shimmy was capable and self-assured, so I didn't feel I had to take the reins. Baruch Hashem, just after five dates, ten dates rather, Shimmy and I got engaged. And after 11 long years of dating, I finally became a kala. And believe it or not, I didn't introduce Shimmy to my overprotective parents until after we got engaged. So what lessons can be learned from my story? Number one, don't be influenced by the opinions of other people. For years I made the mistake of letting fear of what people think guide my decision making in Shaduchim. Don't fall into that trap. And remember, you're the one that has to live with that person, no one else. Had I still been hanging on to my idea of getting a macher, 
I might have let my perception of Shimi's nerdy pictures influence my decision. And I've missed out on meeting the most special person in my life. And two, don't overpower your dates. For all those strong women out there, there's nothing wrong with being intelligent, confident, or strong in your opinions. These are tremendous qualities. But don't make the mistake of overpowering the men that you date. That's very important. Share in the conversations, but maintain that feminine side. Show an interest in, in hearing his opinions, even if you don't agree with them. And it's important to know that everyone can change. I'll close with this story. Professor Bennett decided to discover what makes a millionaire. He wanted to know what makes a millionaire. What are the qualities of a millionaire? So he gathered 250 PhD students in the university and he said to them, it's taken me a year. I've assigned each one of you to go live with a certain millionaire. In six months, come back and give us your report of why your guy became a millionaire. Six months went by and now they come back. And everyone gets up one after another to address the audience and tells them almost the same exact findings. My guy, he's ruthless. My guy is mean. My guy will crush anyone to get to the top. My guy is being sued or suing someone. And it's going like that. 1, 2, 10, 20, 50, 100, 200, until they get to 249. PhD candidate 249 comes up and he says, my guy has no enemies. He's not suing anyone. He's not being sued. He's a friendly guy. And now the professor is stuck. How could it be? Everyone fell neatly into the same you know, type of profile, but 249. We've got to send another group out to 249. Right? And he was a pharmacy magnate. His name was Bigelow. And he decided to go to his house, which is situated right there in front of the Hamptons, gorgeous on the ocean in Long Island. You know, Mr. Bigelow, you were part of a study of what makes a millionaire. But something's wrong. All of our students came back with the same findings. And you are completely outside the curve. You're not suing anyone. You're not being sued. You have no enemies. You didn't crush anyone to get to the top. He stops them. He goes, hold on. That's exactly who I was. That's exactly how my father raised me. Son, set your goal and crush anyone who gets in your way to get to that goal. And that's exactly how I behaved until a year ago. Myself and 20 other CEOs, multi-billionaires, American CEOs, decided to take a little trip to Europe to expand our business, looking for new markets. We're done. We said, you know, we have three extra days. Why don't we just hop over to Israel, startup nation, where we met with some, philanth- with some investors. We had an extra day, so we hired a tour guide. And he took us to Yerushalayim. And most of these people are not religious, the CEOs. And he goes, I tell, he tells them, I saved the best for last. I'm going to take you to the biggest institution of Hebrew learning in the world, the Mir Yeshiva. And so he tells them what happened. Here I am with these CEOs of American companies. And he takes us into the Mir Yeshiva. And we see men learning the Talmud everywhere. There's no chairs. They're learning on stairs, underneath stairwells, everywhere. And no one even looked up at us. No one even admired us. You'd think they would be like, wow, look at these CEOs of American companies. And then the tour guide says, I saved the best for last. Let's go meet the CEO. Nassim Tzvi Finkel. Allah Shalom. 
So they walked up to his apartment. Expect the dean of the university should have a bird's eye gorgeous condo overlooking the cell, right? They walk in, old furniture, old shank, sfarim everywhere, broken down living room, furniture and all that. He says, gentlemen, have a seat. How'd you like the tour of my school? Wow. So Bernie Marcus, who's the head of Home Depot, big chain of uh, home you know, stores, says, Rabbi, how do you do it? How do you run such a place with such precision? 8,000 students. I can't do that with all my stores. So he tells him, because today you came to see what a human being looks like. He asked him a question. How, long, how much space would it take to be able to have a college for 8,000 students? He told them, I'll give you the answer, about 750,000 meters. Here you have 3,000 meters. That means every student gets half of a meter. How many teachers would you need for 8,000 students? Hundreds. Maybe five, 600? Here we have 20 rabbis. And how many people would you need to run this whole empire? $40 million budget. A dean, assistant deans. Here we have one Rosh Hashiva. He says, gentlemen, today you saw the difference between an animal and a human being. So Mr. Bigelow says to the investigators, when I heard that, I came back and I said to myself, I don't have to be mean and vicious and cunning. I could be nice and friendly. I could change. And it could change. And I could be someone else. And that's my message to you today. Look within yourselves. Grow. Become better. Dig deep, develop your meadows, develop your talents, develop your skills. And it's my, I give you my utmost blessing. We should come back here next year, and everyone here should be a chassan and a kala. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.